0: Episode 280 of the Read to Lead podcast is brought to you in part by FreshBooks Cloud Accounting Software, offering you right now a free, unrestricted 30-day trial. Find out more at FreshBooks.com slash Read to Lead and enter Read to Lead in the How Did You Hear About Us section.
1: Increasingly, employees now are saying, it's not just what you pay me. It's not just the benefits I get. It is what kind of flexibility, what kind of employer are you? What skills in particular will I learn that will build the portfolio?
0: Hi there. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. It's the podcast that is dedicated to your personal and your professional growth. My name is Jeff Brown. And if you've listened for any length of time, you know by now that I believe that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, that intentional and consistent reading is a must. and this show is all about helping you dig into more books more often in far less time it might take you otherwise and not only is the reach lead podcast going to help you narrow this list of books but we're going to bring you key insights and valuable ideas from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors and today that author is john r brandt he's author of the book nincompoopery why your customers hate you, and how to fix it. I plan to ask John to share about why nincompoopery is a bigger problem now more than ever, what many leaders often get wrong about innovation, how we can better prepare employees for what John calls the moment of truth, and lots more. Coming up in a few weeks here on Read to Lead, I'll be sitting down and conducting an interview for the first time with a biographer, not the typical Read to Lead podcast interview. We'll be studying a particular person's life and how we can apply the lessons learned to your own life and business. For now, I'm going to keep uh, who that person is a secret, both whom the book's about and the author, but you can look forward to that in just a couple of weeks. John R. Brandt, CEO and founder of the MPI Group, has devoted more than two decades to studying leadership and effective purpose driven organizations an expert on how companies can adapt themselves to the realities of new markets, new corporate structures and new customer expectations. He is an accomplished management innovator and an internationally recognized expert on manufacturing, technology and performance measurement. He is also formerly publisher and editor in chief of Industry Week magazine and served as president, publisher and editorial director of the chief executive group, publisher of Chief Executive. Uh, his new book is called Nin Compupuri. You heard that right, Nin I can say that word all day long. Why your customers hate you and how to fix it. I'm delighted to have him, John. Welcome officially to the Read to Lead podcast.
1: Jeff, I am delighted to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, a couple of things I learned uh, in reading the book this week is one, you're a very funny guy. I loved your <laughs> writing style. Uh, it, it's obvious to me that you have uh, a journalism background. I, I, I think that comes through in your writing. And I also learned that you are a very intelligent person. Uh oh. So now so, we're in trouble. <laughs> so the, bar, I've set the bar. I've set the bar. I guess kind of high. Wow. Well, let me first off start by asking you to define, I guess, nincompoopery in in this context and and, and your decision to choose to focus on the act in in your title versus the the perpetrator.
1: Uh, Thank you. It's a great question. Nincompoopery is the corporate stupidity that we all experience and often, sadly, many of us in our companies deliver, where something, a bit of customer service, a process that interacts with customers or takes or delivers them value doesn't work the way that it should. Mm. And the problem is everybody's staring at it, and everybody kind of knows it's not working. You can see the irritated customer, you can see it's not working, and nobody does anything about it. And that's what nincompoopria is. The, the example would be, uh, imagine you go to get your car fixed, and you, you you sit there for two hours, they fix your car, you're driving home, you go, oh my gosh, they didn't fix the car. And now you're struck with the fact that you've got to go back to the dealership or drive an unsafe vehicle, and you're going to think, ah, I can't must be a nincompoop and the, the mechanics boss is probably gonna say hey you nincompoop why didn't you fix this and yet in almost every time where this happens when you look at companies what you find is that it's never the nincompoops it's always the nincompoopery mm. because most of the time it's leaders who haven't set up a process that works right works works correctly they haven't figured out a way to train workers they haven't figured out i mean i mean that poor that poor mechanic what if that person had been trained on something more than just technical skills? Maybe an improvement methodology or maybe on using something as simple as a checklist to check that. That person wouldn't feel like a nincompoop, wouldn't get treated like a nincompoop. I would have gotten my car fixed the way I wanted to. The dealership would have made money because they're going to lose money now because they got to do the same job over again. And everybody loses. And yet we see this over and over again at companies. And the question is, why? Why does that happen? And it happens because leaders are not paying attention to the way that delivery of customer value and customer experience has changed over the last 20 or 30 years.
0: Mm. Uh, I I like that in the beginning of the book, we're given a choice on on how we can read it. one of the ways was to begin with the afterward, uh, which is really about understanding why it's more prevalent today than it's ever been. And why do you believe that to be the, the case, more more so today than, than ever?
1: It's really hard to be a leader and to run an organization. Our organizations are so complex now. You know, Even a small organization is going to have thousands of processes, you know, from running a register to who's going to mop up the store at night. If you have a large organization that just mul- that's g- geometrically multiplied. Quite apart from that, though, is the fact that we are all dealing with information overload right now. Mm. If you want to right now, you can literally work 24-7 until you until you keel over in about three weeks. And there's a lot of stats out there. I mean, we have successfully connected over half the Earth's population to the Internet. And we've got employees who are working 24-7. There's stats that people are looking at their phones 150 or more times a day. And what happens then is that you become ever more harried, ever more stressed. It is no accident that employees are stressed out, that managers are stressed out trying to figure out how to manage these folks. And there are a lot of other issues. You know, we've got demographic trends. Many developed economies are starting to run out of workers right now. Uh, The baby boom generation, every single one of them is going to be eligible for retirement within the next two, three years. And so the idea, who's going to replace them, how do we do that? The social contract has changed i mean there was this very short period of time in the united states of america where if you worked for a large or even a mid-sized corporation and you did your job kept your head down and complained too much you could reasonably expect cradle to grave employment and a retirement plan afterward mm-hmm. that went away in the 70s or in the 80s so what has happened then is that social contract between us and the employee has changed because if we can't promise that to them what are we offering and increasingly employees now are saying it's not just what you pay me. It's not just the benefits I get. It is what kind of flexibility? What kind of employer are you? What skills in particular will I learn that will build the portfolio? The only portfolio of security that an employee has now is what they can learn and take on to the rest of their career in case the two of you part ways.
0: Hmm. I've lost count of the number of times I've parted ways with, with employers <laughs> over the years. Uh, I wised up about six years ago and decided I think I'll just work for myself <laughs> now and I don't think I'll fire me anytime soon. So.
1: <laughs> no matter how much you dislike your boss. <laughs> exactly,
0: exactly. Well, in the book John describes uh, three types of, of nincompoops who prevent change. Uh, John, if you would take some time to describe what those are and and why in particular you suggest we stay away from only two of them.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, this goes back to I, I do a fair I do a fair amount of mentoring and often I run into people who say, "Oh, you know, I don't know if I'm I, I don't know if I'm ready to be a leader or not." And and almost always they are. And the, you have to say, then, so why do so many people feel that way? And it's because we listen to the wrong people. And there, there's three groups of people. There is woe is all of us. And I call those the woe is all of us people. And those are the people that you work with. They could be your customer, employer. or They say, nothing is ever going to change. Everybody who works here is denser than a neutron star. You can't change it. You're just wasting your time. That's the first group. Second group is woe is you. And these are the people, and there's kind of two different groups of these. Woe is you is just like, ah, who are you? You've only been here five, ten your entire career. You know, what do you know? You don't have the right degree, etc. Those people can be just unintentional. They might just, they might just be down. They might just be, you know, be beaten down by all the ninkum pooper they've experienced. There are a few that will do it intentionally. And in part, sometimes those are people who don't feel good about themselves and have sort of weaponized their own self-loathing and turned it outward so that they don't have to blame themselves for the fact that the nincompoopery and their situation doesn't change. And then the last group, and these are the group, is called woe is change. And these are the people who say, gosh, that sounds like a really good change, but boy, that would be really hard. How would we ever do that? those are your people because if you can get them on your side and show them what the future is going to look like you can make great things happen in an organization business or non-business and then a lot of the other people will come along you got to find the the people who are just worried about change because change is hard everybody says they love change but they usually love it if nothing's going to be different so
0: (laughs) I love change on one condition (laughs) I love change as long
1: as you have to change and not me
0: (laughs) right, well let's move from uh, uh, change to uh, I guess another aspect of change, and that's innovation, which John says is is key to your anti nincompoopery plan. I guess but I just in, like to keep adding syllables to <laughs> words right. so they can become harder and harder to pronounce. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, innovation, I think, it, it, is is a word itself that uh, and a concept that so many really don't understand what it is. Ultimately, uh, John, what are leaders often getting wrong in your view when it comes to innovation?
1: You know, I think one of the first things is that innovation is just this. It's like mom and apple pie. I mean, who doesn't like innovation? You like innovation. I like innovation. Have you ever met anybody? I mean, I, mean, I met every senior executive I've ever met loves innovation, <laughs> but they don't really know what it is because they tend to think of it as this, it's like, it's like magic, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's a new, it's a Model T, it's an iPhone, it's a spin brush, you know, the first <laughs> low cost electric toothbrush. They tend to think of it as some sort of technological wizardry or leap forward that is going to rearrange markets and everything. And, and there are examples of those. They're really exciting. Too. The problem is, is that it's like the worst it is not like it is. In fact, the worst kind of innovation <laughs> to focus on, because it's really expensive, and you've got to get your timing exactly right. You know, the spin brush itself—that little, you know, five-six-hour toothbrush—cost a million and a half dollars to develop, mm. and it's really unreasonable. I mean, seventy-five percent of companies in the United States have under a million in revenue. They're never going to spend a million <laughs> and a half dollars on developing a new technology. Right. And the other issue is that I mean, there's—I think there's something like thirty thousand new consumer products that are launched each year and 5% of them succeed. Hmm. So this is high-risk stuff, and if you don't have the pockets to do high-risk, then you're better off focusing on what innovation really is. And what innovation is these days is customer value has a lot of different components, much more than it used to. used to be, we thought, well, is it a quality product or is it not a quality product? Mm-hmm. You know, which, which led to this great marketing scam in the 90s where everybody advertised the quality of their product. <laughs> and, and consumers and businesses were both wised up in a hurry and said, well, wait a minute, shouldn't it have always done what you said it was going to do? <laughs> and so quality is no longer a differentiator. Everybody just expects You're going to sell them something that's going to work. What they want to know is, how do you deliver it? You know, if you are in a business context, you know, some 80% of manufacturers in the U.S. are using some, at least some practices of lean, which means they're looking at just-in-time delivery and minimal inventories. Sometimes the quality of your delivery can be every bit as important as the quality of your product. People are looking for, you know, how do you partner? you know do do your it systems do your management systems do those fit well with ours what value do you add beyond the product increasingly that's what people want and increasingly People are taking a look, I mean, because remember, think about we're looking at these iPhones all day long, or not just iPhones, any smartphone, and we've got our, our to-dos on it. We've become a to-do list culture. What that means is that your customers are at least as stressed as you are. And when you go in and talk to them about a new product or an innovation, they're not thinking, wow, that's the greatest thing I've ever heard. They're thinking, is this person trying to take three or four things off my to-do list? Or are they adding something? in terms of, I have to learn how to use this new thing. So increasingly, the way innovation is seen by customers across industries is, have you understood researched, come and worked in my business, been in my home, have you figured out what are the things that I'm really worried about? And you're coming up with a solution of which your product may be part, maybe only a small part.
0: And that extends itself to when there are problems too, right? Uh, Don't most customers put more emphasis on how they're made to feel in your attempt to solve that problem more than anything else?
1: It really, I mean, that's a great point, Jeff. You know, when you have a problem with a business, when something goes wrong, you know, we all tend to focus on, well, is it going to get fixed or not? But there's a lot of research out there that talks about it's not just whether it gets fixed it is how you were treated there's a great study uh, done in europe in banking by mckinsey several years ago they were focusing on something called the moment of truth and the moment of truth is when you're dealing with a customer and there's a chance for something to go really well or more often there's a chance for something to go disastrously wrong and so mckinsey found all these bank customers in europe where they had had a moment of truth. Something went wrong. Their account got hacked. Mm-hmm. Uh, check was denied. You know, some, some, they got financial advice maybe that wasn't, wasn't right. And what happened was they were able to distinguish between those people who had what is called a positive treatment at the moment of truth and a negative one. The positive one is that The bank reaches out and tells you what happened, says, here's our plan. We are sorry, da-da-da, it takes care of you. The negative treatment at the moment of truth is when the bank doesn't tell you. You have to find it out yourself. You call in, you can't get anybody on the phone. They don't seem to care. It doesn't get taken care of for, for some period of time. And what's really interesting about that is that because they were able to differentiate these customers into two groups, People who had this bad thing happen to them, if they felt they were treated well at that moment of truth, 87% of them who had a positive experience increased their share of wallet with the bank. Mm. 72% of the ones who had a negative experience decreased their share of wallet. And this is, I I think, this is true. It's true in business because it's true in our relationships with uh, friends, with spouses, with with everybody else in our lives. Relationships are fundamentally forged in a time of crisis because what happens then is you learn who you can trust and who you can't. And what happens in that moment and how you were treated or how you treat the other person is going to influence that relationship for the rest of the time you know that person. And that's just as true in business as it is personally.
0: Yeah, that really hits home with me as I think about uh, what I consider to be my last uh, time of, of crisis, losing my job uh, back in 2013, and I needed to earn money and earn money quickly and jump full-time into what had been my side hustle. And uh, thankfully, I had a side hustle, but as the need for that side hustle increased, so did my need to lean on a solution for accounting for the income going in and going out and invoicing clients, and thankfully I had a partner like FreshBooks Cloud Accounting Software with me from the beginning so that when that moment of crisis happened and I needed to ramp things up a bit rather quickly, they were ready to do so right alongside me. If I sound passionate about FreshBooks, it's because I am. I've been with them for 10 years. They've been with Reed to Lead off and on for three or four years supporting this podcast. I think it's a great cloud accounting software solution, and I recommend it highly. And right now, they're Offering a free, unrestricted trial, you can test out all of FreshBooks' features for 30 days with no cost or no obligation. Now, to do that, you just go to freshbooks.com/read to lead again get access to every single thing that fresh books has to offer see if you like it if you don't that's okay but i think you will again try it out free right now freshbooks.com slash read to lead and oh by the way be sure and enter read to lead in the how did you hear about us section that's freshbooks.com slash read to lead uh sticking with moment of truth for a second john as employers, how can we better prepare our employees for this? Maybe some tips or some insights from your experience.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really important to do three things well when you're hiring. I mean, first of all, you've got to hire well. And what I mean by that is that we tend to be overly resume focused in the way we hire. I mean, it, I mean, I mean if, you're, if you're hiring a car mechanic, a jet mechanic, I mean, the person has to be able to fix a car or a jet. Uh, that's understandable. But that's just, I mean, you don't want somebody who, who can't. But beyond that, you have to look for other things. You have to look for, for smarts, for diligence, for passion for what they're doing, for people who care about other people. And the reason that's important is because if you look over the last 20, 30 years in business and many other fields, you don't really find an organizational model that works that isn't decentralized. We are putting decision-making close to the front lines of production, whether it's insurance forms, manufacturing, a retail counter, decision-making close to the customer. If that is the case, you have to have somebody who actually cares about doing the job right or cares about that customer. Then you have to train that person. And it's really mind-blowing when you look at some industries and you see that the amount of training that gets done annually for employees can be eight hours or less. Our research over the over years says that really if you want to be world-class, you have to do at least 40 hours of training per year per employee. And companies that are doing great things or winning awards typically are training 60, sometimes 100 or more hours because they're not just training for technical skills. They're training on collaboration on improvement methodologies. They're training on finances because if you're having people who are making decisions close to the customer, they are making thousands of decisions a year that will influence the customer relationship, long-term customer retention, and also your margins. Don't you want them to be as smart as possible? (laughs) There's a little story I tell in a book. There's a a true story. I'm giving a speech one time and I'm talking about the importance of training. and I have a CEO in the back of the room who jumps up and says, well, he goes, you're talking about this training. He goes, I've heard this before. He goes, let me tell you our experience. We realize we can't afford to train. Because every time we train somebody, the minute they got good, they leave. So we can't afford to train. <laughs> and I had another CEO popped up, and she looked at him, and she said, well, I, I think that is about the best employee retention strategy I have ever heard. We keep our employees so ignorant that nobody wants to hire them.
0: <laughs> that's one of my favorite stories from the book. <laughs> <laughs> I, just,
1: I, I was like, wow, that's just awesome, because I didn't know what to say at that moment. <laughs>
0: Well, shut him, shut him down pretty quick, and you didn't have to be the one to do it.
1: <laughs> it was, it was magic. It was magic.
0: <laughs> wow. Well, uh, talk a bit, John, about the requirements for change that you outline in the book, and I'm talking specifically security, relationships, and meaning, and and how leaders can can manage these requirements.
1: Yeah, it's really when we talk about change, so often we talk about change, and we tend to think that we're going to change a process or change the organization. And what happens a lot of times is that leaders forget the fact that you're not just changing a process, you're changing a bunch of stuff that affects some human beings who just happen to be your colleagues and your employees and maybe your bosses. Paul Lawrence, who is a sociologist and a professor at uh, the Harvard Business School, wrote about that when you experience resistance to a change that you're trying to lead, it is almost always not the technical change you're making, whether it's a new technology or the process, it is the social change that 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 will result from that, to, to change in how people relate to each other, how their jobs look and feel. So what that means is that when you're leading a change, you have to look at several different things. You have to look at, first of all, one of the most important needs, whether you're looking at Maslow's hierarchy or a variety of other rubrics about human behavior, almost always the first need that people need to have satisfied is security. You know, am I safe, physically safe, as is, am I economically secure? And the next thing after that, once we know that, what we want to know is, relationships. How am I seen by other people? Am I connected with people? What do they think of me? Do I like myself in the way that I'm seen there? And, and, and how is this change going to change that relationship? How's how that change going to change security for me? How will it change the relationships I have? And then the final thing is meaning because once we have achieved security of some kind or, or made our peace with it and relationships, human beings almost always go to meaning. What does this, what does my existence mean? And for most people, it's a combination of family, faith, principles, but a huge sort of secondary part of that is, is the work that we do. Because if, if you're going to start working in your early 20s and work until your 50s or 60s or maybe even longer these days, you're going to spend 90,000 hours at work. And if you're going to spend 90,000 hours at something, most of us want that to mean something. So if you're leading a change, you have to think about all those things. Now, I will tell you, you can't do them in that order, because if you start talking to people about security, you're just going to terrify them. Plus, normally when you do a change, especially if you have a business that is in some sort of trouble, you may not be able to guarantee security. So you almost always have to start with meaning, saying, look, we are in trouble, or we're going to do this great thing, whichever one it is, or we're going to do both of those things. This is what it's going to mean. This is why you're so important to it. This is how it will mean. This is what it will do for the community, for customers, etc. Then you have to work backward to relationships. I know this is going to change relationships. You need to make sure you connect with people, make sure you listen to them, make sure that you are understanding. You can, you can, know, When a change is necessary, you've got to go, but you can't go so fast that you push people past you know, their comfort zone on all this. And then you do, normally when you're making a change, especially if it's a business that's in trouble, you have to say, look, I'm not sure we can guarantee security, but I do know that we can't make it if we don't do this. Or Alternately, if you're just making improvements, you can say, look, this is going to increase economic security and opportunity for all of us. So, I think the the real issue here is that often the human factor gets gets left behind because people get so they fall in love with the change or the process or they're so panicked about getting it done. And if you leave the people behind, the change will not succeed.
0: And relative to some of those other rubrics you you mentioned, it's it's kind of the concept of beginning with the end in mind, isn't it?
1: Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Begin with the end in mind. Explain what you want to do, why it's important, and also and always make sure that you can explain important to the organization, but here's how it is important to you as well.
0: Mm. Well John, I've got a couple of questions in the time we have that I want to ask you that aren't directly related to the book. Before I do that though, I want to give you a chance to share if there's anything else from the book you want to make sure that we that we walk away with.
1: The questions have been excellent. I just the thing I would say is that Really and truly, you've got to focus on customer relationships in long-term. When I see companies going wrong these days, it's because they are going, a friend of mine calls it, they are over-focused on profit maximization instead of on customer retention. Mm. And you will make a lot more money and make a lot more people happy if you focus on things that are going to build a long-term relationship as opposed to trying to hit the next quarter's numbers.
0: Well said, as, as everything you write and say seems to be.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're too kind.
0: Well, I want you to think about, John, the, the the books you've read the last few years. What would you say are two or three titles that come to mind as having had an impact on you and your career and maybe share why or how they impacted you as, as they did?
1: There, there are a lot of them. <laughs> I would say that maybe two of the most impactful one I read many, many years ago, and it's Getting to Yes by Roger Fisher. It's a classic book on negotiation. It's a tiny book. It's very short, but it really talks about negotiating from a sense of trying to understand what the other person wants. And is there a way for us to set up a deal where both of us are going to gain? Mm-hmm. And, it, and it, it talks about being principled and it talks and it also is very helpful in making sure that you don't feel manipulated when mm-hmm. someone tries to use guilt or whatever. It's just, I, if somebody was starting a career, I would say that's a great thing To read there because it just it's it can set you up for how you want to have ethical relationships that have good boundaries Mm. in business and elsewhere I think the other one um, there's an author named uh, he was a executive and then turned sort of sort of management philosopher and author named Charles Handy and a book that he wrote probably 20 years ago maybe a little more called the elephant and the flea and it really was prescient in predicting sort of the gig economy and how all of us would start building portfolio careers Mm. And what that meant, how you do that, how you manage that was really, really impactful. And he, hes I think he's in his 90s now. He's just written another article that I've read uh, recently, and it's, it's, its he always has something interesting to say.
0: I had not ever come across either one of those as long as I've been doing the show and getting recommendations from other authors. Neither of those books have been recommended, so I'm looking forward to, to, to diving in. So thank you for those fresh recommendations. I appreciate it. it enjoy Uh, as someone who uh, has a chance to speak in front of audiences on a regular basis and does so though I haven't seen you I would assume quite successfully what are some of the tips uh, you would be willing to share with us John for delivering an impactful and memorable public talk
1: well the first thing to do is to remember that when you are doing a presentation you are actually telling a story you are narrating story in which your audience is the protagonist you're standing in front of a group of people and you're talking, for example, you're to a business group, and they're concerned about you know innovation. You say, "Well, you know you're, you all are running businesses, and you're frustrated right now because you, you don't know how to innovate, you don't have enough money, et etc. The best speeches, I think, always have the, the audience as the protagonist in the story that you're telling. They always are done with Aristotelian structure, which means there's a five parts, there's a beginning, there's three, maybe four point main points and then there's a conclusion the conclusion is the summary and at the end of every speech you need to ask the audience to do something because if you don't ask the audience to, even mm-hmm. if it's as simple as change the way they think if you don't ask them to do something different you've just wasted their time good point point. and i think the other thing is that it's really important to use case studies there's a, I mean, OSHA should put out limits on the amount of data and charts that should be that should be put in the presentation, <laughs> because, because people people's heads hit the hit the desk. People since for ten thousand, a hundred thousand years, people have been engaged by stories. That's how we learn. So if you have case studies, or if you have stories of your own life, or some in your career, or, or something has happened, and can tell it truthfully in that. the case studies that don't work in a speech or or anywhere else are the ones where everything works perfectly the first time. (laughs) That just offends our intellect because we all
0: know that didn't happen. What we really want to learn from is tell us the ways that you screwed up and how you fixed it. Love it. Love it. Great advice. Well, finally, I want to ask, I know the book's only been out for a few weeks, but uh, if I can, what's ahead for you and your team that you're looking forward to and currently uh, excited about?
1: We are really excited about a whole variety of projects. We are getting to do some work in Africa right now on uh analyzing healthcare supply chains and trying to figure out how to make them move faster. Because if you can make a supply chain move faster, you can get more drug to more people and you can save lives. Mm. So honestly that's probably the most exciting thing. We are doing a lot of exciting stuff. I love the work we do in lots of areas, but that's pretty cool.
0: Where where can we find out more about you online? Where's the best place to go there?
1: Uh you can go to Johnrbrandt.com. That's J O H N R B R A N d as in dog t as in tom.com and you can find out more about me and read other nincompoopish things (laughs) i've read i've I've written so
0: that's that (laughs) awesome well the book again is called nincompoopery why your customers hate you and how to fix it and his name is john brant uh john thank you so much again for appearing on the show and giving us your time today really appreciate you working through some of those technical difficulties and and making it here thank you so much
1: jeff thank you
0: Funny and smart. It's almost not fair. As always, for the links and other resources John and I mentioned, you can find those at the page created just for this episode. It's the show notes page. You'll find it at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 280 for episode 280. Remember FreshBooks, our sponsor, offering you that free 30-day trial. No obligation. It's an unrestricted free trial with access to all the FreshBooks features. FreshBooks.com slash lead and enter lead in the how did you hear about us section. For questions, comments, or feedback on Read to Lead. I hope you'll shoot me an email, jeff at read to lead podcast.com. Well, that wraps things up for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time for the next episode of the Read to Lead podcast. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead.